we had, had won a great deal of awards at uh, British Television Awards and we were in a taxi in a black cab driving from the Grosvenor house back home in a black tuxedo thinking, you know, incredible, this is amazing at such a tender age winning awards on the big stage in the industry in the UK. And the taxi driver, he looked in the mirror and he said, uh, so uh, what's, uh, what, what's, what sort of game are you boys in then? Oh, we said, oh, we're, we're in advertising. He said, advertising, yeah, advertising gives the punters something to look at, I suppose. I'm Train Patrick, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's podcast where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their story, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special power that makes their craft so remarkable. For some, special powers can mean the power to entertain or to make people laugh, but for Mark Tutzel, the executive chairman at Leo Burnett, it's a little bit more prosaic. It's watching people. And it all began when he worked as a lifeguard while on summer vacation, a job that he ended up keeping for eight years. That was interesting, actually, because you spend your life sitting there, obviously, with the purpose of protecting people, but you spend a lot of time just watching people. And that's when I sort of, sort of, kind of got fascinated by people and their behavior. And you'd sit there for hour on hour, and you'd just watch the world go by. And you'd watch people at play, you know, from, and all these little pocket dramas used to sort of unfold in front of my eyes each day, and it was hysterical to watch. Like many kids in the UK, Mark wanted to be a professional footballer. But like many, he realized he was good, but not great. During, you know, secondary school, I was sports crazy. And I was captain of the school football team, the school basketball team, the school swimming team. I played football and basketball for the country. My father was a physical training instructor in the army. And I was destined to play for Liverpool. I wanted to be a professional footballer. I played for the schoolboy. It was it was ingrained in my in my blood. I mean, it was part of my DNA. And my grandfather played in goals for the country as well. So it was uh, Sport, sport, and sport. And uh, so I always sort of dreamed of one day that that would be my destiny and that would be the outcome. But um, it was weird, actually, because when I was in school, art played a great part in my schooling, and I was particularly good at that. And also, completely polar to that, I was very, very good at mathematics. So I was studying pure and applied mathematics, calculus and coordinate. incredibly well-rounded. And... I was fascinated by, by art, design. My uncle was a photographer. My father was a great calligrapher. And um, my cousin, Glenn, was a, was a renowned designer in London. But right down the middle was football. <laughs> so I would always spend my days sitting in the window, looking out of the window, looking at the football field longingly and just wanting to be out there and kicking the football. And there was no greater joy. What happened next? I realized I was good, but I wasn't great. And... Um, I met somebody, a teacher in school, who was a, quite a renowned local artist, and he took me under his wing and slowly weaned me off football and immersed me <laughs> in, the, in the art department. I was mean, that does, difficult for you? Well, it was at the time, actually. I mean, actually, one day he locked me in the room to stop me disappearing to the football field. So he, he thought the only way I can tough keep love. him here, tough love, he has to embrace this, you know, this, this uh, subject matter is to actually lock the door so which he did and um, 
I'm grateful to him and thankful for that because it, you know it opened my mind to something I actually had a passion for but didn't realize how deeply rooted that was. Well, you hadn't created space in your mind yeah, because to- you had something else that you were prioritizing at that yeah. moment. Um, and also, as I said, my cousin was um, a, a famous designer in London at the time. And so slowly I started to um, understand what advertising was. I mean, you had no idea what advertising is. You know, it's just TV commercials. and Someone you know, makes them. Somebody makes them. But if you ask the person in the street, is what you get paid money to do that. Someone pays you money to have ideas. And you realize, actually, the general public don't know that. And... Um, I slowly started to immerse myself in that subject matter, and then I went to London. I thought I wanted to be a designer, and Glenn, my cousin, who was running Michael Peters, which was the biggest design company in, in the UK at the time, introduced me to to the industry, his friends. I, I spent time at the agency and the design department, and then one evening, I was having drinks with him and a few other people, and... Um, introduced to a friend of his who was an art director at J. Walter Thompson in London. And he worked on the KitKat account at the time, have a break, have a KitKat. So he invited me over just as a matter of interest to have a look into the world of advertising. And I went there for the day and then I realized actually this is what I want to do. What did you love about? I just love, it was, it was alive, it, there was an energy there, there was an excitement there, you know, people, people were constantly... Um, looking for new ways to bring the brand to life in, in such a fresh and, and unexpected fashion. And I love the fact that they had taken um, a product truth about Kit Kat and turned that into an, you know, an incredible line that's endured and has become part of the vernacular. And I thought, how brilliant that must be when you take something so potent, so simple, so so truthful, and then apply imagination and apply the English language to it and create a soundbite, pardon the pun, that literally becomes part of the human vernacular and allows you then to produce infinite, infinite content. And uh, I love the, the intelligence of it. I love the brutal simplicity of it. And then I love the fact that then they could celebrate that idea in so many ways. And, and then the penny dropped. You know, it still required um, design. I mean, I'm fanatical about design. God is in the detail. You know, you have to cross every T, dot every I, and perfection is is something I strive for each and every single day in everything that we do. Um, but it was um, it was just it was just an eye opener for me. And then I realized, okay, this is this is what I need to do. Then you had to find a job. Then I had to find a job. I went to our college. After that, there was a competition to a placement and an agency from Saatchi and Saatchi, Harrison Cowley in, in Bristol. So I applied and I won. So I, I made my way to, to Bristol to, to meet the creative director and my mother decided um, you need to go smart. It's important that you make a good impression. So I wore the only suit that I had, which was a wedding suit from, from yesterday having no idea what, what it was all about and walked into Ooh, this room. You walked into an ad agency. Into an ad agency with a suit on and I felt like the village idiot. And um, and to, the, to this day, actually, the creative director who employed me uh, still re- re- you know, recalls that story and, and uses it against me. So anyway, I, I got there and it was 11 months. We moved to, to Bristol, threw my heart and soul into it and it was, it was amazing. It was a great experience. And then 
we pitched the piece of business and it was the biggest win, the biggest account win for the agency in, in the last 10 years. And my idea was uh, the, the work that obviously that shone through. So, they, of course, they offered me a job. And then this exact person came into my room and said to me, close the door. He said, you're not going to take a job here. I hope you're enjoying the podcast, but right now, a quick break to tell you all about Digiday Plus, which is our premium membership product. Join our community and get a firsthand look at how digital is changing the world of media. You'll get exclusive research, invitations to lots of member events, and Digiday Magazine, and it's only $3.95 a year. Please sign up at digiday.com. For you, our podcast listener, we have a discount offer. To get 25% off your subscription, enter the code starting out at checkout. Now, back to the episode. This exact person came into my room and said to me, um, close the door. He said, um, you're not going to take a job here. You're not going to take a job. Hmm. If you want to be in this business, you need to go to London. So I will do everything in my power to make sure you don't get this job. I'm going to be incredibly cruel to be kind because wow. it's easy and comfortable to stay here. And, and at the time I thought, well, that was kind of weird, strange. But actually, but also incredibly kind. Incredibly kind, and because I had no idea you know, what London offered in terms of opportunity, in terms of just you know an array of, 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 of accounts to work on. So he he basically channeled me and, and set me on my way to London. What do you think he'd sort of seen in you that at least now that you look back and say, okay, that that was something that. I did differently that something had clearly impressed him and also just clicked for him when it came to you. Um, I think he obviously was acutely aware of my relationship with my cousin and he knew that I was aware of the type of work that London was producing at the time. And that, that doesn't mean it, great work only comes out of a big city. That's not, of course that doesn't happen. Great ideas can come from anywhere. But I think he felt there was a greater opportunity in London there were more opportunities to be had in terms of advancement, in terms of taking something that was clearly um, a love affair and more more opportunity for me to grow and to prosper and to, to immerse myself in an industry and start to create the type of idea that I wanted to produce. And um, it was great favor and, and, you know, it was very insightful, actually. And I'm, you know, indebted to him to this day. I mean, I grew up, fortunately, at a time when the advertising, the quality of the advertising product in the United Kingdom was second to none, arguably the best in the world. You know, during my childhood, the advertisements on TV were better than the programming. And, um, you know, you, oh, never, you, you never made a cup of tea. You never went to the bathroom during the commercial break because the commercials were amazing. And you had Ridley Scott, Alan Parker, Hugh Hudson, Kit Kat, Heineken refreshes the parts other beers cannot reach. And it was just this litany of world-class work that, that's endured and is still alive and producing results today. So I always thought that you know creating that type of work was was so difficult in the sense that it, it required brutal simplicity. And what I learned very early on was to connect to people and to get people to create talk value, to create interest, to create that human interest you need reduction, you need to reduce an idea to its purest form. Simplicity is something that people respond to and you know it has to be that potent truth about the brand and it has to have that power to engage, the power to entertain and the, the power to, to be retained. 
And uh, I remember doing a commercial uh, in Libanet in London for uh, John West Bear. And John West Bear was a tin of salmon. And it was a household thing that your mother had in the cupboard. You know, it was sandwiches during the summertime. And it was sort of quintessentially English and, and just simple, simple food. And we produced this commercial of a kung fu fighting bear that was battling a, a bear at the, the, the mouth of a river for, for the salmon and produced uh, this particular commercial. And it, re- it became just part of popular culture. Everybody started talking about it. And it was the first time I realized the, the power of a simple, potent, pure idea and its ability to capture people's imagination. And then people wanted to participate in it. And it was arguably the godfather of the viral effect. When I first came to London, uh, to Chicago, I watched a program of the best commercials in the United States of America. And I thought, well, I need to educate myself and sort of immerse <laughs> myself in American culture and find out what people like. And it was basically what do people think is the best work in the, in the, in the U.S. at that given time. It was a two-hour um, program. So I battled through it for two, and a half, for two hours. Finally, um, it got to number one. Now, the nation's number one commercial, the one that you, the people, have chosen, the one that you love the most. And the number one commercial in the USA is John West Bear. <laughs> John West Bear never appeared in the USA. But it, it circumnavigated it- the world via email at the time, be, you know, before we had this ability to connect you know, so instantly. When you can create participation in a brand, when you can create the content that people want to play a part in, and immerse themselves in, and then I think you have something incredibly potent. There's something else in that advertising also is relatively unique in that everybody has an opinion about it. And not only does everyone have an opinion, everyone feels like they have a right to an opinion about it. Especially as a creative, um, is that was that difficult, especially in the early years? I mean, rejection is a large part of a creative's life, whether it's by your peers and your partners and your boss and your client, um, and also then the and then the public, the biggest sort of judge and jury of them all. What was that like, kind of, when you first got into the business and understanding that this is this is hard because you're putting a lot of your own heart and soul into it, and the responsibility is greater. Far greater. Because you're supposed to be better at it because you have all these tools that should make you better at it. Yeah, but I think we're human beings and emotion plays a great deal in, in everything that we do. And it's, it's, uh, it's important that you know, whatever we produce, whatever content we produce, whatever service we produce, it has to reward people and be of value to people. You know, of course, it has to be entertaining. Of course, it has to be stimulating and interesting. But is it useful? Is it valuable? And, you know, does, will people embrace it? And if you do that on a, on in, in, on, in a constant fashion, then you create a relationship. It's like a human relationship. And ultimately, our goal is to create that lifelong emotional relationship with people. What has been one of the most difficult periods of your career? Do you remember a time that, just remember it being just hard? Um, I've... <laughs> Always promise myself the day I wake up on a cold Monday morning and it's pouring down with rain outside, and I tell myself I'm going to work is the day I resign. I've never been I've never been in a situation where I've not enjoyed work. Um, you have successes, you have failures, you have highs, you have lows, but you know we're blessed to work in an industry in an ideas industry 
I think we're very fortunate um, to to operate in in the world that we operate in. You are very optimistic. I like it. Yeah, no, I am. I've I've always been optimistic. You know, I mean, it's um, that doesn't mean you know you, you have your dark moments and your disappointments. Of course, you do. But I always think there's a creative solution to any problem. There's lots of reasons why why ideas don't come that don't come to fruition or don't don't see the light of day. When you have ideas that are overambitious and dependent on money, and you have to kind of pull the plug because it's an incredible idea, but without that um, investment in that idea to bring it to life in, in to, to the level it needs to be, is obviously you know you pull the plug on ideas like that over time. Um, ideas that just are not right for the brand. Um, it's there's so many things that that get in the way. It's uh, you know, these things have happened, you know, disappointments where we've had um, amazing ideas um, on the table, amazing ideas in production, um, and the and the plug has been pulled at the, 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 you know, the final second. I mean, the big, probably the biggest disappointment was many years ago, we worked on United Distillers, and we worked on white, white horse whiskey, and we had this idea of white horses, in the whiskey, it was all about the potency and the strength of the whiskey. And um, so you opened on, on the cap of the of the bottle with the horse on the top, and you went into the liquid, and you you were in the ocean, and out of the out of the wave came these beautiful white horses, these white stallions, and they hit the rocks, which is the ice, and they all kind of dissipated into the into the rocks themselves. We were in the process of shooting it. We went to Vienna to source the horses, these incredible white Lipizzano horses. And we, we were, had an a, um, aircraft hangar where we were putting them over the jumps to, to map them into the liquid. And then out of the blue, the one of the clients had pulled the, plug, pulled the budget. Did you get a call? Just got a call in the shoot. As these beautiful white Lipizzano horses were going over the over the over the jumps, and then it was dead, and I I was virtually in tears. And then fast forward uh, eighteen months, and Guinness Surfer mm. comes onto the air, which made me cry even harder. <laughs> it's not the same idea, but, but pretty close. Yeah, no, pretty, pretty close. Pretty close. So that was hugely disappointing. But no, but by and large, I mean I'm much more of a can do, will do, must do. Is greatness more difficult to achieve today, especially as young people come into the industry and the kind of legendary, the legendary greatness, the kind that goes down in history books? Do you feel like that's more difficult with everything that's happening with technology, with agencies, with the market? I mean, obviously, I was fortunate to grow up in an era where there were legends. But, you know, legends... Kind of, it's kind of a weird word. I mean, I think there's legendary work, and I'm much more about the work and the, the first and foremost, and then, then the people behind that work. But I think the industry today is still full of amazingly talented people. Do they do what they did in those days? Of course, they don't. But do they all use creativity to great effect? Yes, they do. And are they producing work that's of, of human interest? Of human value, and are they solving problems, and are they driving business success? Um, I don't think they are celebrated in the way that they were in the early days. Um, Is that difficult for you know young people that come in and meet with you, and you know they're reading? Maybe they went to portfolio school and they've read all these things and seen all this work, and mm. 
some people chase fame. Some people want fame, and yeah. it's a different. It's, it's a, a false economy. Time. It's a false economy. I mean, you you don't you don't chase fame. You know, it's it's. I'm I'm much more interested in, in being around people who have passion for what they do. My door is always open. I remember going to Chicago for the very first time, and uh, somebody knocked the door and said, "Can I have a word with you?" And I said, "Yeah, well." Open the door, come in. I, if I have an idea, can I show it to you? I said, well, of course. I'm the creative director. You're a writer. Of course. The door's always open. He went, wow. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I said, well, why is that amazing? He said, well, because that's not the system. You have to show it to the creative director who shows There's it. The a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy. And I said, no, 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 no. All of that is gone. There's basically one flat line. We all work for the work. Ideas are king. And if you have a great idea, you, my door is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I've always been like that. So I, I love to give people opportunity to shine. And the great ideas, don't try too hard. I mean, I've always been a people person, you know, and um, I've learned a lot from people and I continue to learn a lot from people. And uh, I've watched, you know, as I said, when I was a lifeguard, I'd watch people from, from afar. But it's interesting, actually, you know, when I was in school, Playing team sports, you know, you were stronger together, working together, particularly football. And if you apply football to our industry, there's lots of overlap, you know, because it's about it's about curation, picking the right players in the right position, doing the right job. Well, tell me about your kind of management style. I mean, once you, when was the first time you managed people and what was that like? Because it's very difficult. I think not everybody's a great manager. Um, and a lot of, you know, great creatives are great creatives. Great managers are great managers. Learning to become a leader can be difficult. Um, my, when I first started, my, my philosophy, philosophy was always to lead by example. Um, I'm not um, a manager. I don't manage people. Um, I work with people and I'm much more of a player coach. I need to work, and I still work today, and I need to be at the coalface creating and, and influencing clients and influencing the, the you know, people around me in terms of you know, capability and, and opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm always about continual improvement and working with people. And the one thing I've always said to anyone I, I've had the good fortune of working with is that you never work for me. We work together. So I believe in a circle. I don't believe in a triangle. If you look at the triangle with the hierarchy at the apex and everything filters down, that's not a model I've ever subscribed to. Mm -hmm. And that team mentality probably came from sport. Um, and something, you know, I, I don't care what level you are, everybody is capable of having an idea. Mm -hmm. And every idea is incredibly valuable. So I'm, I'm much more of a cultivator of talent and I love to be around people and I love to um, take ideas to the next level. The one thing I'm particularly good at is improving ideas. And that gets better over time as you start to, you know, understand how ideas work and how you can improve and how you can craft them. So mm -hmm. I've constantly um, been about creating that uh, connectivity. Um, and I believe in, in something I call creativity with our borders. I believe everybody should be given an opportunity to produce, regardless of location, regardless of budget, and regardless of portfolio. So what we have at Leobanet is an ecosystem where everybody 
is allowed and has the opportunity to work on big, big, big brands with big budgets and big opportunities. And um, it's paid amazing dividends over time in space. And if you look at the best work from the company over the course of the last decade, it's come from Creativity Without Borders. But I love to give people opportunity to shine. I love to give people opportunity to create. And I love supporting, endorsing, and nurturing talent. And uh, that's kind of been part of who I am as a human being. You know, my father used to say to me as a child, treat people the way you'd like to be treated yourself. And so for me, it's always about how do you get the best out of people? David Abbott, who's sadly passed away now from Abbott Mead Vickers, BBDO in London, used to have an expression that flowers bloom in the sunshine. Flowers bloom in the sunshine. And what he meant by that was if you create an environment where you can Make blossom, everybody can, everybody can create. How does that manifest then when, you know, you have to make hard decisions, whether it's telling somebody that this is not going to work out right now or whether it's for an idea or with people or with, because a a lot of leadership, the greatest part of leadership is what Mm. you just described. The hardest part of it is the hard decisions. The ones you don't actually want to make, not the ones that you wake up in the morning and say, yeah, I got to go do this today. I mean, when you when you have an idea, it's your baby. You know, there's there's this thing that you're trying to protect. You know, ideas are fragile. You know, everybody's trying to erode them, and and there's always there's always a bump in the road. And the thing that I've successfully done over time is, it's never personal. This is not about you or about me. This is about the actual product itself. How can that product be improved? Or is that product good enough? So if you talk through the lens of the product and the idea, then it takes away the personal grief around you know, the conception of that idea and, and the thinking that's led to that idea. Obviously, that doesn't always work because people bleed for ideas and they believe in their ideas and they're very passionate about their ideas. But at the end of the day, there has to be some form of quality control. And I try to lens it and talk around the quality of the, of the work itself as opposed to the people behind the work. And uh, to date, it's, it's worked fairly successful. I've not had many people leave the office in tears. <laughs> in tears. That's a good <laughs> barometer for it. That's Mark Tussle, and that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Adithi Sangal. If you like our show, please subscribe and leave us a review. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and we're also on Anchor.fm. I'm Shreen Bhattak. We'll see you next week.